0: More lapsus hacks, some bugs, some more bugs, and then some more bugs still. All that and more, plus bugs, on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. Paul, I like to start the show with a fun fact, as you know, and, uh, I was doing some research about undersea cables the other day, and I found that the undersea cables that shuttle data between continents are typically two to seven inches thick and are good for about 25 years before needing to be replaced, and that such cables can contain up to 200 fibers, and each fiber has the capacity to transmit up to 400 gigabytes per second. So if you're wondering where your internet comes from when you're accessing a site on the other side of the world... It, it comes
1: from under the
0: ocean. <laughs> yes, it oh, does. Sorry, no.
1: <laughs> Not from outer space, like the old days. Yep. Do you remember satellite phone calls?
0: Yeah, they didn't work a while. Well.
1: Yeah, you, <laughs> you had to pretend you were on a two-way radio, didn't you? Because yep. there was that 250 millisecond delay if things were going well as your voice went all the way to the to the satellite and all the way back. And they, of course, they were single duplex, weren't they? They they couldn't carry speech in both directions at the same time.
0: Very expensive. But still, we, we applaud the uh, advancement of technology in all its forms. Something that is advancing yet slowly is this lapsus bust. They've got a couple of the crew apparently in custody, but the hacking continues. So this is more than a two-person crew, Paul.
1: Or the stories that keep getting spouted about this are all based on a misunderstanding that keeps getting copied and copied and copied. <laughs> the way I see it is that we know there's this gang that calls itself Lapsus Dollar. We've spoken about these guys a couple of times on the podcast. We know that they've been involved in hacks at Microsoft, at Okta, I think at Samsung, various other places. And in fact, in that NVIDIA case that we've spoken about they didn't want money. They wanted open-source your drivers. So it's, it's quite a crazy mix-up of behaviours. And as you can imagine, that likely means it's quite a mix-up of people involved. And at the same time that the, all the story was emerging about the hack at Okta, the two-factor authentication company, at that very time, word came from the City of London police in England that they had arrested and released under investigation seven people who were involved in hacking offences. So everyone jumped to the conclusion, oh, it must be the Lapsus gang, because there's also that dumped documentation by another cyber crook claiming that one of the guys in Lapsus, perhaps even the kingpin, lived in the somewhere north of Oxford. So he's definitely based in England. And people seem to put two and two and two together and got about 12 or 15 or <laughs> 194 and so it's lapsus gang bust as though well obviously if they bust seven people if one of them is even vaguely possibly connected with this gang they all must be well says who the city of london police never said and anyway more lapsus shenanigans came to light they dumped a whole load of data for a big services company called Globant. they supposedly dumped 70 gig of their data or something after these arrests and then the City of London Police said two youngsters will appear in court uh, in London charged with a whole bunch of hacking offences. One of them was charged with three offences, the other with the same three offences and an additional one related to things like unauthorised access, fraud and so on and once again everyone's saying oh the, the lapsus guys are in court. Well maybe they are, maybe they aren't and Even if those two are lapsus dollar, there's no suggestion that's all they've been involved with. So they might be lapsus, they might not be lapsus, and they might be a whole load of other things besides. So basically, if you're going to take precautions against cyber intrusions, don't focus too specifically on the lapsus dollar story, as fascinating as it might be. Go for protection in breadth, because there are. Plenty more scammers of that sort out there. And Doug, if you want one message that you can take away from this whole lapsus dollar story, the important thing is that they are using standard social engineering tricks that lots of other crooks use. For example, tricking, cajoling, browbeating, persuading insiders into giving them remote access, and they have an additional arrow in their quiver, which is a rather nasty one, is that as well as trickery, where they get someone who isn't intending to be naughty to do something that they later regret, they also use bribery. So they will actually offer to pay people, apparently, inside a company saying, we'll give you money if you let us in. So if you, in your company, if you don't already have somewhere easy to remember and effective for your staff to report security anomalies, make sure you get one quickly. Because it's very rare that the first attempt at an attack will succeed. And if somebody can say something, then everybody benefits. And the only thing you can be sure of, if nobody knows where to report anything, then everybody remains at risk permanently. And the crooks love that because it means they can try over and over and over and over without anyone inside getting warned or proactively protected.
0: Great. We will keep monitoring the situation. That is lapses. Hacks continue despite two hacker suspects in court. And we have some bugs from Firefox, Google, and Apple. Oh my, plenty of updates to go around, Paul. Let's start with Apple and work our way back to Firefox.
1: Yes. Well, the others, Google... Android gets its routine updates pretty much at the beginning of every month. Firefox is every four weeks and it just so happens to be on a Tuesday and it happens to be today when we're recording, the same Tuesday as the date on the main Google Android update. So those you can kind of expect roughly when they're coming or in Firefox's case, exactly when it's coming. But Apple, as always, hey, it's ready and here it is. So, iPad OS and iOS 15.4 went to 15.4.1, and Mac OS Monterey went up to 12.3.1, and all the older versions, it seems, were unaffected. Although, mysteriously, as somebody pointed out on our Twitter feed, and I noticed on my Mac, uh, there was magically another version of Safari appeared, but it's still called 15.4. And it seems that this was entirely down to an emergency of two zero days relating to data leakage and remote code execution. So Apple wasn't saying any more than its usual, we're aware of reports that this is out there. Maybe they don't actually know all the details yet, but it's very well worth checking that your iPhone or your Mac is up to date.
0: I did learn by reading this article that anytime you see kernel code execution bug, that is something to pay attention to.
1: certainly is, because the kernel is the part of the system that controls all the processes in the system, if you like. Getting what's called root access or admin access on any computer is a big deal, because it kind of lets you do almost anything, but getting kernel level access is the god plus mode, if you like because it actually lets you mess with the internals of the system. So you can actually see what's going on, for example, say at a device driver level, so you see the data before any app does, before really even the operating system itself does at the application layer. And uh, likewise, on the way out, you get to manipulate stuff before it leaves the system. And you even get to interfere with things like, well, if you're lucky, with things like process creation and worse, memory management.
0: Also, the uh, Google Android updates are similar and they are patching some Git root holes.
1: Yes, the good news is there are no remote code execution bugs, so it's not as though somebody can just lure you to a website and you view a fantastic new image or read an amazing news article and oh dear, some malware runs on your device and takes it over. So there's no remote code execution, but there are a whole bunch Of elevation of privilege, EOP bugs. Oh, the other part of the good news is, as far as we can see, the Android monthly updates, A, they're routine, so they haven't had to be rushed out, and B, none of them have known exploits available yet. So there are no zero days in there. They're just things that could be exploited if someone put in a little bit of effort. So, as we always say, why be behind when you can be ahead?
0: And then Firefox 99. No major bugs, so we've gone from most severe to least severe.
1: I think that's fair, because Apple's, obviously, that was emergency. Zero day, remote code execution in the kernel, patch early, patch often. Then there's Android, elevation of privilege bugs, loads of them that could lead to an app that you think is harmless, and therefore you were perhaps over-inclined to trust it, that actually, oh, I can use that exploit to to snoop on your whole phone. In Firefox, the good news this time, no remote code execution bugs. And again, like Google, none. That were zero days or known to be in the wild. So it's all just bugs that possibly could be exploited, possibly even for remote code execution, but nobody's figured it out yet. So the bugs were found. They could cause crashes or denial of service and, and a few other bugs that were in there as well. But once again, even though they sound unimportant compared to zero day kernel remote code execution, they wouldn't get CVE numbers and they wouldn't be a security advisory if they didn't pose at least some danger. So once again, why be behind when you can be ahead?
0: All right. Well, all three of those stories are on naked security.sophos.com. And it is time for this week in tech history segment. Well, we talked a bit about undersea networking earlier in the show And though this segue is quite a stretch, this week, on April 5th, 1995, the world was introduced to Satan. That's the security administrator tool for analyzing networks, of course, S-A-T-A-N, which was a free tool for scanning potentially vulnerable networks. It was not uncontroversial, of course. Many pointed out that making such a tool available to the general public could lead to untoward behavior. So, Paul, I'm hoping you can contextualize how far we've come since the early days of scanning tools like this because these things are all over the place now.
1: Well, to be fair, Doug, they can still be used for good or bad, like a kitchen knife or a chainsaw or a hammer. I guess we've become more accepting of things particularly like network scanning tools as a vehicle for good, although we've increasingly had to recognize that as much as we know about how to use these tools and make hay from them, the crooks know at least that much and possibly even more. So yeah, you're right. When, when Satan came out, it was considered controversial. And these days, I think the general feeling is, you know what, if there's a tool that could be used for good, let's just learn to use it for good. And when we recognize that it's there, then let's see if we can tell whether it's somebody good or bad. And unless they can prove they're good, then we won't let them use it. And the idea that then that you could have threat blocking software that would optionally block that stuff or say, well, we'll define a group of people in our organization who are allowed to run, say, Nmap, but with everyone else, we don't want them just blindly doing it because if nothing else, it'll just create a whole load of noise and false alarms. It's just a complication we don't need. People would have gone, no, no, you can't do that with a threat prevention product. There should be no middle ground. But these days, that's perfectly acceptable. And people expect a product like Sophos' threat prevention products. They expect us, well, if it's obviously malware, block it. Don't ask anybody. Don't give them a chance to right Just stop it. Deal with it. If it's potentially unwanted, in other words, it's not strictly illegal, but it's kind of dubious, well, just, yeah, those, you know, adware, stuff like that. Yeah, we, we've decided, we've made our own decision. We want to block that by default. And then, hey, here's a whole list of other tools, some of which are perfectly legit, but we just don't want those in our organization. And now that's accepted as a sort of reaction to tools like the Satans of the world. It's great because it means we have a much more flexible arsenal for reasonably controlling what goes on on a network and on the computers on the network without just saying either it's overtly bad and we'll block it or else we're not allowed to touch it.
0: Great info. Very interesting. I love your work, Paul. So thank you for that. And uh, let's see our next story. What do we have? Oh, Oh, bugs. More bugs. We've got two VMware bugs and a whole bunch of confusion.
1: Yes, VMware Spring, which is a Java programming toolkit, pretty big thing, that allows you to essentially write online distributed, if you like, server-driven applications without worrying about the server side of things. So if you've ever heard of serverless computing, which ironically probably needs more servers than you've ever had in your life, but you don't have to worry about those details. Spring, which is actually VMware Spring, it's an open source product, but it's owned and operated by VMware. This is a toolkit that helps you do exactly that for Java programmers. And unfortunately, two different bugs, similar but different bugs, appeared at about the same time and got into the news at about the same time in two different parts of the very large and variegated Spring ecosystem. There was a bug which is CVE-2022-22963 in a component with the amazing sounding name Spring Cloud Function and there was a separate bug called CVE-2022-22965 in a component called Spring Framework. Both of them could cause remote code execution, so they're quite worrying. And of course, everyone's thinking, oh, golly, when was the last time we had a big Java remote code? Oh, no, it was Log4Shell back in December 2021, the infamous series of related bugs in the Log4J programming library. And so some wag decided that it would be a fantastic <laughs> idea to call one of these bugs Spring for Shell to echo Log for Shell. They obviously thought Spring 4 Shell would be a really exciting media-friendly name. And it was not a terribly good idea because, firstly, there were two bugs. And people couldn't figure out. I, I was contacted by several journalists and, 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 and other observers saying, what is a Spring for Shell? And they, they didn't seem to know which of the two bugs it was. And how would you patch them? And do you just patch Spring? Well, no, you don't. And what's the connection? Spring 4 Shell, it's obviously connected with Log 4 Shell. Is it going to be as dangerous as Log 4J bugs? Do you patch it in the same way? If I've patched my log4j, does it help with it? What a lot of confusion. So like I said in the article, calling any remote code execution bug something, something, something shell is a little bit like talking about the sickness disease it's not terribly helpful <laughs> since getting a shell is a generic term for remote code no. execution and shell code if you if that's the what you inject the malware you inject the runs is, is a generic term and the fact that it causes confusion with the whole log for j bug December which is a big deal because of its timing coming up to the Christmas holidays and all of that stuff. And the fact that there were two different bugs in different components that required you to update a different Java thing in your Spring application uh, just meant that Spring for shell what a silly name. And um, what was the 4 doing in there? So then some people thought, oh, no, that's, that's just that's just media nonsense. They're just trying to make it sound like log for shell to make it more exciting. We're not falling for that. So then some people started calling it SpringShell. <laughs> Oh, as though, as though that would, that would that would clarify things even more. So now you have two different bugs with two different names, both of which are generic by saying they're shell bugs. That's at least useful. And both of them echo this log for, ge- oh, dear, dear, dear. So we published a couple of articles on naked security. And the second one, it doesn't really go into how the bugs work. It just simply says, here's some naming stuff. And that's one reason why CVE numbers were invented in the first place. They're unique. They're sort of semi-random. And they don't have any linguistic baggage. So we're recommending that when people refer to these, they refer to the first one as CVE-2022-22963, the Spring Cloud Function bug. And the other one referred to as CVE-2022-22965, the Spring Framework bug. Then you can say, well, some people are calling the first one the Spell Vulnerability, S-B-E-L, and they're calling the second one Spring for Shell, but those are just nicknames that are kind of quite confusing. So it's quite a lot to get your head around.
0: Holy moly, yep.
1: So A, Patch Early Patch Often, and B, When it comes to talking about bugs, if there's any possibility that you might cause any confusion at all by using a cool nickname, no matter how funky you think it sounds, stop, think, and then don't do it. (laughs) Clarity is surprisingly important in cybersecurity.
0: Yes, it is. This is serious. Not
1: that I feel strongly about it, Douglas.
0: No, no, sir. All right, that is two different VMware spring bugs at large. We cut through the confusion, and that article is the latest and links to the earlier one, if you want to read both of those.
1: We also have a link in there to an article on our sister site, news.sophos.com, where Sophos Labs have looked into the protection that they can provide by looking for network traffic that might trigger these bugs. And there's a link for Sophos customers to a Sophos security advisory to explain which of our products and services, if any, are affected, and the simple version of that
0: is none of them.
1: But there's an official article in our standard format, which you can go to if you want to find out more.
0: Great. All right. And Paul, I'm happy to report that we have a listener-submitted story.
1: And it is this particular contributor's third oh no.
0: Podcast listener Alan writes in his third submission A recent naked security podcast somehow reminded me of something that happened at my local college whilst studying A level computer science here in the UK in the early 80s. They had a state of the art DEC PDP 11 computer running an early version of the Unix operating system, and it had a dozen or so dumb terminals connected to it. The college lecturer seemed to know everything about it, and his students were in awe. In one class, he talked about security and how Unix stores passwords and why it wasn't possible to obtain and use someone else's credentials. Uh, just as an aside, careful making claims like that. Indeed, he yes, was so confident. crackable. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not a word you use. It's like, yep. Find another one. Hard. Very hard. But impossible. Never say never, Douglas. No.
0: Well, indeed, he was so confident in the security of his Unix system that he challenged his students to try to crack it and access someone else's account. What could possibly
1: go wrong? Exactly.
0: He was clearly (laughs) very confident they would fail. One student decided to take the challenge seriously and turned up 30 minutes early for the next class. He had crafted a simple script that looked a lot like the Unix login program, but whose purpose was to append captured credentials to a file, issue an authentic-looking incorrect password message, and then execute the real login program. He then logged on to each terminal and started his script running before anyone else had arrived for the class. Shortly after the class started, he had captured everyone's password, and nobody was any the wiser. During the class, he proudly announced his success to the college lecturer. Bizarrely, the lecturer wasn't happy with the approach the student had taken to obtain the passwords and said that this was not in the spirit of the original challenge. The student was disciplined for his actions. Oh, how the world has changed. Yes, indeed. What a story, Alan.
1: Yeah, and the good news is, obviously, because of events like that that happened in the early days of computing, it's thanks to what we've learned from things like that, that this sort of attack, which today is known by the amusing name phishing, is almost unheard of, Doug. Fake login screens, (laughs) you just don't (laughs) see them anymore.
0: Oh, no. Of course not. Amazing, that just the this simple, this, this simple sequence of events, the, the fake login p- program, oops, wrong password, and then I'm going to redirect you to the real pro- login page, and then you're going to enter your correct password and think nothing of it.
1: Yep, because obviously you made a typing mistake. I guess one contemporary lesson that you really can learn from this, and what I do like about the story, is the way it ended. That instead of being super impressed, the teacher went, oh no, you did it wrong. He did the wrong kind of hacking. Presumably what he wanted people to do was get hold of the database and like somehow figure out how to reverse the hashes or crack the password by building a a program like the crack password cracking tool, do a dictionary attack, a password guessing attack, a brute force attack, whatever you call it. And the big reminder is that these days with any any company that has a bug bounty program, they will typically have a fairly definitive list of what is in scope. So that's important. If you are going to hack these days, legally, in the hope of a bounty payout, don't make your own rules. Most companies will have set their own. And the flip side of that, which this teacher missed out on, if you are going to set an overt challenge, like, you'll never do this, I challenge you to break in, then make the rules clear before you start.
0: So this is impressive that a kid in this kind of sort of entry-level course had figured out how to get into all these computers.
1: Maybe... He or she had simply done a little bit of research and read documentation that was already available in the 1980s saying, this is how phishing works. They just didn't have a cool name to call it. You know, that's the problem is that even then this person may not have needed to figure it out from first principles. They may have learned this already from available texts. And if that was possible in the 80s, imagine how much easier it is today.
0: Yes. As Alan says in his last sentence, oh, how the world has changed. And oh, I would add, oh, how the world has not changed in some ways. We're still using
1: (laughs) these techniques today.
0: So thank you, Alan, for sending that in. Thanks again. If you have an interesting story, a comment, or a question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to Stay Stay secure. Secure.